Well, now you get a proper good morning. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to you. What a special day it is. If you want to see the wonder of how God has designed the family, watch a mother. Watch her care and her diligence, her tender love that can only come from the heart of a mother. It's a love that never gives up. It perseveres through any trial. If you ever wondered if God is complementarian, watch a mother. We men would fail miserably if tasked with the beautiful calling of a faithful wife and mother. They're strong in the exact areas where we're weak, beautifully harmonized with God's design. And we thank the Lord for our mothers. We praise the Lord for our mothers that we have in our congregation. Your faithfulness to your family, your dedication to seeing your family in Christ. We celebrate that and we celebrate you today. Well, what better way to celebrate the nurturing of a mother than to be nurtured by God's word? I want to share two updates with you concerning our brothers and sisters to the north. Pastor James Coates trial began on Monday. It went on for a few days until being adjourned until June with no decisions made as far as I could tell. But unfortunately, now this week, another graduate of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Pastor Jacob Riem, who pastors Trinity Bible Church in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada, and as well as yet another brother uh, at another church in Canada. They have been shut down in spectacular fashion with chains on the doors. And Jacob uh, has been a faithful brother through this season. He penned a lengthy post after their eviction, which has been an encouragement to churches around the world. He titled it, We Lost the Building and Kept the Church. I won't read it all, though you can look it up online, but there were a few key parts I wanted to share with you. Pastor Riem writes, our first Sunday worshiping together at our new facility was the first Sunday after the first lockdown, June 14th, 2020. In total, we've spent about 11 months together in our facility. And given the very visible stand we have taken over the last several months for the crown rights of Jesus over his worship and his headship of his church, I believe that God's timing was perfect. Today, a court granted the province of Ontario the authority to take our facility. For some of those 11 months in our facility, we have met in contravention of provincial dictates. We have participated in what the public health people consider high-risk behavior, namely the millennia-old tradition of gathering weekly to worship our Creator. And he goes on to speak about the number of COVID cases in the area extremely low. That's enough, though, he writes, to deem the public worship of Jesus Christ dangerous and enough for the province of Ontario to kick us off our land and bar our doors shut. The purpose of this seizure is to prevent us from meeting as a church. They believe that we will continue meeting in our facility no matter the fines or the public shame heaped upon us. They're right. We are willing to pay any price necessary to worship our Savior because He is worth it. He died for us and we want Him to receive a reward for His suffering. Churches used to sing songs like Charles Wesley, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing and mean it. We still do. But it's now cost us our facility. Policemen sat outside our lot in cruisers on Sunday to chase down our people and ticket them after the service for gathering to worship. That's after each elder received a ticket this past week for opening the church. That's after the church itself received a ticket this week. And that's after we were convicted of our second count of contempt of court today. Combined, we are facing over $40 million in fines with jail time. And that is not enough. So they've taken our building. 
They took our building because they think that will stop us from worshiping. The early church met in the catacombs under Rome. The covenanters, they met in fields. John Bunyan led his services in forests. Churches find ways to worship together. As surely as water flows downhill. Pastor Rehum writes, our building was a gift to us from God. Now we have it no more. During the season, we could have complied with the protocols. But if we had done that, we would have already conceded the facility to the province. The province would have essentially owned not only our building, but also our fellowship and our worship. We will not let them own our building. We did not let them own our worship. We did not let them own our fellowship. So they stole our building, but we'll keep our worship and we'll keep our fellowship. Many churches around these parts think they still own their buildings, but they already voluntarily handed their buildings and their people and their worship over to Caesar months ago. We just forced Caesar to come and take the building, but we've kept the church. We've kept the church. Caesar can have the brick and mortar. We've kept the church for Jesus. He who seeks to preserve his church will lose it, but he who loses the church for Christ's sake will keep it. I like that. Hebrews 10.34, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. We prove today that we love the giver more than his gift. He gifted us a building and we honored him by using it tangibly to assert his supremacy over the church and give him the worship he deserves. That cost us the gift, at least for a while. But nothing can repay the debt of love we owe to the one who shed his blood for us, giving us the irrevocable gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We're the whole realm of nature mine. That were a present far too small. Love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen. Please be praying for Trinity Bible Church in Ontario. They are yet another church meeting underground this morning in Canada. The persecution of these bodies, though, is forcing churches all around, and particularly churches in the United States, to examine what they believe. To examine what sound ecclesiology looks like. Ecclesiology is just a fancy word to mean the study of the church. What is the church? What is her role? What does it mean to be the church? There's one thing the advent of COVID has revealed. It's that we have an appalling and we have a terrible understanding of ecclesiology in the United States. We don't know what the church is. We've lost sight of the authority and the calling that's been given to her by none other than Christ. We have little sense of what it means to be the church. For many, it's a social gathering. For even more, it's a cultural practice, which means that the vast majority of what we would label the church is not, in fact, the church. Now, most of us can tell that the church is not a building, right? We know that. We love our building, but we know that it's just brick and mortar. But here's where it gets interesting. Here's where it gets dicey. What if now, say, people from the community gather in that brick and mortar to meet with each other? Is that the church? Nope. Still not the church. What if believers now gather in that brick and mortar? Is that the church? Well, we're getting warmer. The answer is it depends on what the believers do when they get there. If 50 believers gathered and they just stared at each other, would that be the church? No. So is it possible for those who profess faith in Christ to gather under one roof and still not be acting as the church? 
Yes. Yes, it is. It is possible to gather. Is it possible to gather and to be the church, perhaps in some ways, but not in others? Yes, as well. Is it possible for some in the congregation to be the church and some not? Absolutely. Tares grow amongst the wheat. It has always been so. We must recapture what it means to be the church. We know, saints, we know that we never walk our calling out anywhere near perfectly. That's not the standard. But what are we marked by? What are we known by? What defines our trajectory? A church that does not love is not the church. A church that walks in fear is not the church. A church that has turned in on itself, that is not reaching its community, is by definition not the church. If we're not engaged in the Great Commission, we're not the church. We're sheep outside the gate licking our wounds. Yes, there are wolves out there. There are wolves out there. We're not guaranteed safety or comfort. Not anywhere in this book. Though our culture now worships at the idol, at the altar of safism. Not the church. Not the church. We are just called to be obedient. Marked by boldness and marked by love. We could preach volumes on this topic, but it will be one of great focus for Harrison Hills as we head into a new and what is an exciting season of pruning and growth. It's painful and it's beautiful. Well, last week our sermon was titled Shine. Shine. We gazed at the lampstand, Jesus Christ, as Jesus put before the disciples a rhetorical question, didn't he? Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be put on a lampstand? Well, the obvious answer here is no. What Jesus is saying to his disciples here had both an immediate context for them, but it has immense application for us as well. Recall that these verses, including what we'll complete today, they're really extensions of their many parables. They're proverbial sayings. They're offshoots of the parable of the soils. Well, if you missed that two-part series on the soils, I'd encourage you to go back and take a listen to those to make sure you have a good foundation for this message. But as a refresher, the immediate need for Jesus to share about the lampstand last week was Jesus shifting his teaching style to parables. Remember, Jesus used to speak very plainly, didn't he? Very plainly to all the people. Now that Jesus is well into his ministry, he's beginning to speak in a different way. The disciples watch the masses walk away in confusion. They don't understand what Jesus has said. And they're even annoyed with Jesus. They're annoyed with him for speaking in parables to the people. But then something very special happens. Jesus pulls them to the side and he explains the parable just to them. Well, that sounds great, doesn't it? But that presents a risk. The danger was the disciples thinking that they're involved in some sort of, remember the word esoteric, some sort of esoteric system, that this gospel, this message was a secret message that was only available to those in a very special inner enlightened circle. Remember the Gnostics. They claimed to have a secret knowledge only available to those that were in the club. Well, now with the master speaking in these veiled speech and in these parables, is that what we are supposed to do? Are we supposed to speak cryptically as well when you send us out to the nations to preach the gospel? Jesus needs to head this thought process of the disciples off at the pass. 
Last week shows Jesus saying, no, no, that's not what you're supposed to do. You let your little light shine. You shout this message from the rooftop. You scatter this seed on every soil liberally. And if you give it away, more will be given to you. More will be given to you. We used the analogy from the Holy Land, didn't we? Of the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee. One lives, one is dead, and both are fed by the same River Jordan. The only difference is that one has an outlet. One moves the water through it, and one hoards the water to itself. The gospel is a message that thrives and grows the more it's given away. It's not designed to live in a stagnated heart. We don't put the lampstand under the bed or under a basket. We put it on the stand for all to see, for it to do its work. And nothing is secret then. Nothing is hidden. All will be revealed. Remember, saints, we ought to live our private lives as if the whole church was going to watch our highlight reel Sunday morning. For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. Well, we examined the common traps as well last week that we fall into that cause us to run to this false comfort of the basket or the bed. What causes us to hide our light? Fear of man, which we see in Galatians 1.10. It really means that we are a man pleaser. Anxiety, laziness or apathy. So many reasons it's different for every person. But we are to shine. We are commanded to shine. A person who has turned in on themselves in their walk, who engages in perpetual navel gazing, whose faith does not extend beyond their own thoughts are in dangerous waters. A church that has turned in on itself is already dying. The River Jordan can keep flowing in from the pulpit, but where does it go? Is it passed on? Well, today we have two more extensions from the parable of the soils. It's remarkable. We have two parables about the kingdom of God. Two stories that leave us amazed and surprised at what God does. I was very tempted to break these into two, but we're going to endeavor to press through here. And again, these are normal stories. Understandable to the audience. So we won't complicate what Jesus makes very simple. So with that, let's jump in. Mark 4, 26 through 34. And he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil and he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the grain is ripe, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he was saying, how shall we compare the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is the smallest of all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes largest of all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he was not speaking to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this text. We thank you for the hope that it gives us. We thank you for its simplicity. 
As always, give us ears to hear what you are saying in your word. Lord, we cannot hear this apart from you. Unstop the ears, Lord. Remove the wax, Lord, that it might penetrate our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in Tel Aviv 2005, some remarkable headlines appeared in the world of archaeology. See, back in 1973, archaeologists had recovered seeds from the then-extinct Judean date palm at the ancient fortress of Masada. Now, Masada is a fascinating, it's an amazing place to visit. I've been there. It's up on the top of a mountain, and it overlooks the Dead Sea. It was home to Jewish zealots, amongst others, and it ended very dramatically with a suicide pact as the Romans built a bridge up the side of the mountain to capture the forest. It's an amazing story. Well, at the time of the discovery of these date palm seeds, these seeds were 1,900 years old. And they went into a drawer at a university in Tel Aviv until 2004. After that, painstaking methods revived them the following year, including a seaweed-based soil, probably the best soil one could get, I assume. And on March 18, 2005, the date palm Methuselah, emerged from the soil, bringing the species back from extinction. Seeds are amazing things. 1,900 years old, brought back to life. It's no surprise that seeds are so often used by Jesus to teach us. We have so much to glean from our Savior in this text. Let's begin. Verse 26. And he was saying, The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. Well, let's pause here and look at what we see. First observation, who is Jesus speaking to here? Well, if we're not careful, we might be tempted to bring over the preceding verses where Jesus is speaking to his disciples in seclusion and think that Jesus is doing the same here. But be careful. If we skip ahead to the end of these parables, look in your own Bibles to verse 33 and 34 here. What does it say? And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them as they were able to hear it. And he was not speaking to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his disciples. It's easy to miss that. So back to verse 26. Who is Jesus talking to here? Who's hearing the story that you and I are about to hear? It's back to the multitudes, isn't it? And that matters now, right? That matters because of what we've been taught about parables. Who this story is being delivered to. We need to under see and understand this scene. This is being spoken back in public here. Back in our text, this first words, the first words out of Jesus' mouth, they are a sermon series by themselves. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is like. Again, the teaching on the kingdom of God is a big one. But here, what is Jesus talking about? What is the kingdom of God in this context? Here he's speaking about the realm of salvation, adding souls to the kingdom. He's talking about conversion. Those who were dead in their hearts and did not know Christ. Now, I'm excited because the savior of the world has just begun a story telling us the kingdom of God is like the kingdom of God is like, well, what's it going to be? What grand and glorious thing? Maybe mountain peaks, eagles, warriors. Yes, Jesus. What is the kingdom of God like? It's like a man who casts seed upon the soil. Oh, that's a bit of a letdown. This is not grand. This is not lofty and unknowable and unsearchable, untouchable seeds. This is simple. This is intimate. 
Yes, God is perfect in majesty, but he's come down in the person of Jesus Christ, meaning you can touch his garment. He is present. He's very present. The kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. So three elements we need to deal with here. What do we see? We see a man. We see seed and we see soil and we see soil. Because of your foundation with the parable of the soils that we went through in our series, you should be pretty up to speed on these three elements. But very quickly, who's the man? Who is the sower? Is it Jesus or is it the evangelist sowing the seed? The answer is yes. Yes, it's both. What is the seed? The seed is the word of God. What is the soil? This is the ground of the heart. What does the sower, the farmer now do? Verse 27, Mark 4, verse 27. And he sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows how he himself does not know. Mounds to see here. First, understand, saints, understand as a general rule in interpreting parables. When you look at a storyline, you want to focus on anything that seems improbable or unnecessary in the story. And there you'll find the meaning. There you'll find the meaning. Anything improbable or unnecessary? Anything like that in verse 27? Oh, definitely. What farmer out there thinks they're just going to plant some seed, go to sleep, watch the news, all they need to do is sleep, rise, and the seed is going to sprout and grow? Not likely. Farming would be the easiest thing in the world if that were true. Instead, it's some of the hardest work there is. It takes constant work. Constant tending. So is there something improbable in this verse? Yes, that the farmer is just going to plant the seed, go to sleep, rise up, drink some coffee. Just plant the seed. No more effort is required by the farmer. Not a chance. So we have something improbable that tells us, look here for the meaning. Look here. What is that trying to convey to us? What is Jesus saying? The point. The point being made is that the farmer has no control over this seed. The farmer cannot make that seed sprout. He's going to bed. The life that is generated from this seed has nothing to do with the sower. Salvation is not of you. Salvation is of the Lord. The kingdom of God then does not depend on human effort to achieve it. And human insight or knowledge will never be able to explain it. In truth, the sower is utterly powerless over that seed. He couldn't negotiate with that seed. He couldn't shame it into sprouting. He could yell and stomp his feet. Nothing. That seed would just sit there. And now that the farmer scattered the seed on the soil, he is still powerless in the process. Did he need to scatter the seed? Yes. And now once it's in the ground, Jesus gives us an improbability. The farmer just leaves it. That gives us our meaning. Salvation is of the Lord. I can't explain the inner workings of a reborn creation. I can't tell you how it works. I can't tell you how Jesus makes a man or a woman or a child new on the inside. But he does. I can't tell you how a seed works. How it sprouts and grows. I have no idea. There were no microscopes or seed sciences back in ancient Israel. In fact, even now that we do have them, we're not entirely sure how it works. The hearer understood we have no idea and we have no control over it. The entire process of germination is a mystery. The rebirth is a mystery. The soil of the heart explains the why. Why that seed sprouted. But it doesn't tell us the how. The how is a mystery. 
And praise God for mysteries. If we understood it all, that would make us God. Don't be disheartened by mysteries. They are most necessary. Well, this parable flies in the face of those who would use man-centered tactics in evangelism, doesn't it? Manipulative tactics to get people to walk an aisle or to grow a church. These are people who don't understand that it is a mystery. They don't understand the soils or the inner workings of the seed. These are not ones who plant and go to sleep. They think if they lay just the right soil with just the right amount of sunlight, if they tend all the weeds, if they have all the right programs, if they say all the right words, that the seeds will sprout. Nope. It's a mystery. Charles Spurgeon said most large churches aren't big. They're just swollen. Bigger is not always better. Your formula for church growth is not going to trump the mystery. I'm not saying you can't collect a whole herd of goats. Sure you can. Entertain the goats and they will come. The poor sheep there usually end up dying of malnutrition or by wolf attack. No, the sower sows the seed. And the seed sprouts and grows. How he himself does not know. And we need to know and hear this, lest we think ourselves too important in this process. Jesus is telling us that we are not a party to the mystery. I am going to go to sleep and the seed is going to sprout. The only interaction we have in this process is patient, quiet, faith and confidence. What else do we see here in verse 28? Mark 4, 28. The soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. Well, this is amazing. What kind of crop do we see here? Do we see a crop that's choked out? Do we see a crop that's eaten up by the birds? No, these are good sprouts. It is brought to maturity. Him we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. A mature head of grain, birth, sprouted, the blade, the head. He who began a good work in you, he who sprouted that seed by and through the mystery of the Holy Spirit will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It's all of God. Saints, look to the first part here, verse 28. It says, the soil produces crops by itself. By itself. Now, this is easy to miss in the English. The word for itself, automatos, it's used in only one other place in Scripture. Acts 12.10, in Peter's miraculous escape from prison. I'll read this. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them... By itself. And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel departed from them. Do we see that? What did Peter have to do with opening that iron gate? Nothing. Could he have moved this monstrosity if he had wanted to? No way. These were huge gates. Huge. It's all of God, isn't it? It's all of God. Back to our text, verse 29. Mark 4.29 But when the grain is ripe, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. March 10th, 1522, Wittenberg. Martin Luther was addressing how he was able, Martin Luther, 
how he was able to spark such a movement. He was asked basically, what is your secret sauce, Dr. Luther? He said, quote, I did nothing. The word did everything. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing, end quote. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. J.C. Rowell writes, quote, The highest abilities, the most powerful preaching, the most diligent working cannot command success. God alone can give life, end quote. The harvest will come. It will be slow. It may be painful, but it is not of you or of your abilities. The word does the work. The word does the work. And now look at the goodness of God. After all of this, we get the joy of harvesting a crop that we had no part in making. God brings us into this process by his divine desire. It is his joy to allow us to participate. The psalmist says, quote, they have sown in they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth bearing precious seed shall doubtless come again with rejoicing bringing his sheaves with him. Now implicit in all of this is the promise that the harvest will come. It will come. In order for the harvest to fail, the God of the harvest must fail. And God never fails. He never fails. But he's not going to take the sickle to green wheat. The sun must warm and even scorch. The rain must feed and even flood. Only when it's ripe and ready, when it has gone through every stage and trial, it will be harvested. Praise the Lord for the heat and the cold and the rain and the flood. Make us ready. Give us roots, not just for the process of regeneration in this life, which applies to this as well, but to make us fit for eternity. But even as we know in our minds, as we hear the preacher tell us, it's not of you, it's not of you, the thought of partnering in the most amazing task can seem overwhelming, can it? It can seem overwhelming. I can tell you as a pastor, the knowledge that we're responsible for and accountable for those we shepherd has an element of terror to it. An element of terror. Every pastor feels utterly incapable for the task at hand. It is so far beyond us. We have so little to bring. And the disciples felt like this. We all feel like this at times. Jesus knows this. And so he closes out our series of parables with some encouragement for us all. Verse 30. Jesus opens with a now familiar saying, doesn't he? And he was saying, how shall we compare the kingdom of God Mark 4, verse 30. Or by what parable shall we present it? We could rightly summarize this by saying that our first parable this morning, it laid out for us the means by which God would bring about the harvest. By God's spirit, not by man's achievement or labor. That was the means. This now that we're about to read is the magnitude. This is how I'm going to do it. And watch how big it becomes. Verse 31, it is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is the smallest of all the seeds that are upon the soil. One quick note on this, if you follow apologetics, I know some of you in here do. There are some who claim that this is an error in scripture, that the mustard seed is not in fact the smallest seed in the world. 
And that's correct. It's not. But Jesus is not making an agriculturally scientific statement here. That's not the intent. The intent is to speak to the audience in front of him in a way they can understand. And in that context, to someone living in ancient Israel, yes, that was the smallest seed that they would know about. So particularly, the people would have understood this, what Jesus is saying, to be the black mustard plant. Why does Lanesville 2021 care about a black mustard plant? Because these plants start out in complete obscurity, in the tiniest of seeds, and they spring up out of nowhere, and they very quickly hit 10 to 15 feet tall. Huge. They're huge. All of the, all from the smallest seeds, you could walk over 50 of them and not see it. And there it is, 10 to 15 feet tall. Now, I won't press the analogy with this. Be careful with parables not to do that. Avoid allegory. Analogy, fine. Allegory, not fine. But I will tell you that this type of mustard, this black mustard, was not only used for condiments, but it was also used for oil. You drew oil out of this plant. I'll resist running with that. I want to, but I won't. Watch the contrast here. Jesus uses the smallest of seeds to verse 32. Mark 4, verse 32. And when it is sown... It grows up and becomes the largest of all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. When a baby was born in Bethlehem, that was the planting of the seed. That was an inauguration. That was an explosion of the kingdom of God. A shoot rising up from the stalk of Jesse. A blade coming up out of the ground in redemptive history. And it would explode. A tiny seed to 15 feet tall. And what would it provide? What would it accomplish? It says so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. We'll be very careful again in parables to avoid allegory. Meaning we don't try to draw parallels to every little detail in a parable. Stay focused on the main theme. That's the point. We don't look at verse 32 and say, for example, Ah, large branches. That symbolizes this. That's not how we read our Bibles. No, the large branches, for example, in verse 32, just mean that a mustard plant has large branches. That's what that means. Now, if we see some language connection or usage, we're okay to examine that. But that's not the main message. So such here, verse 32, we see reference to the birds of the air, don't we? And them nesting in the shade. Now, that was not necessary information, was it? Was that necessary? No. That means we should look at that. It's unnecessary information. Could Jesus have made the point of the mustard seed and the size of it without telling us about the birds? Yes, he could have. He could have. So that tells us, have a closer look here. If we look at a number of places in Scripture, we see images of trees or plants providing protection or safe haven for birds. Consider Daniel 4, 10 through 12. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. It le its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant. And on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals found shelter and the birds lived in its branches. From it every creature was fed. Consider Ezekiel 31, 3 through 6. Consider Assyria, once a cedar in Lebanon, 
with beautiful branches overshadowing the forest. It towered on high, its top above the thick foliage. The waters nourished it. Deep springs made it grow tall. Their streams flowed all around its base and sent their channels to all the trees of the field. So it towered higher than all the trees of the field. Its bows increased and its branches grew long, spreading because of abundant waters. All the birds of the sky nested in its bows. All the animals of the wild gave birth under its branches. All the great nations lived in its shade. What we're seeing here are mighty trees, strong trees, cedars of Lebanon were used to illustrate kingdoms of the earth, weren't they? They were so powerful in their presence that they brought peace and stability to surrounding nations. Well, we'll see that effect. We still see that effect today in the world, don't we? To varying degrees. One theologian writes, quote, despite its small beginnings, the kingdom of God would become a mighty tree providing security and blessing to the whole earth, end quote. Many birds, for lack of a better word, have nested in the tree of Christianity. The Judeo-Christian worldview has generated more stability, more prosperity, more peace, and more progress of society than any other worldview in history. Many countries, even if they are heathen nations, have benefited from the effects of Christianity coming to their shores, its principles in their marketplace. They hate the root of it, but they sure do enjoy taking shade in our tree. The world loves the fruit of Christianity, love, joy, peace. They love to eat the fruit. They love to rest in the shade of it. But of course, they deny the God who made it, the one it represents. Consider the mustard, considering the mustard seed. The the disciples knew they were small. They knew they were small as well. They were not educated. They were nothing to write home about. Even Jesus, the scripture says, had no beauty. Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Such is the kingdom of God. Unseen and unremarkable until God does a work in a soil he has produced. In a seed that he has spoken. And now we have a 15 foot mustard plant that's so towering that even others can come and take shelter in its shade. Back to our text, verse 33 and 34. I'll read them as one. And with many such parables, he was speaking the word to them. And they were able, as they were able, to hear it. And he was not speaking to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. It's no different today, saints. The Holy Spirit illumines this text for us. We either understand this, despite a very fallible preacher, or we don't. This has been an amazing section of Mark. To slow down as Jesus teaches us. And to many that teaching will be to their judgment. There are those who are hearing this message this morning that this is to your judgment. You hear and you're not listening. The presence of these parables is a proclamation that there are those who will not hear. But praise the Lord, there are those who will. There are those who will. Let us remember the parable of the soils. Let us remember the lampstand. Let us remember the means by which God will grow his kingdom. Let us also remember the magnitude by which he will do it. Jesus says in John 12, 35 through 40, For a little while longer, the light is among you. 
Walk while you have the light, so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you going all the way back to the parable of the soils. As you stopped your on-the-go ministry from place to place and you recorded this for us. To teach us, Lord, why the gospel is successful in some places and unsuccessful in others. Why, Lord, the gospel can go forth from this pulpit and why three can shake their head in yes and amen and three have no understanding of what's being said. Lord, we thank you for that understanding. We thank you for showing us that, encouraging us with that. Lord, you've showed us the method. You've showed us the means and the magnitude of the work that you will do. Lord, it's all of you. We're humble servants here this morning. We ask that you would impress this into our heart. Let us not forget the parable of the soils. In Jesus' name, amen.